0: Well, good morning. I'm grateful for this opportunity to share God's word with you today, and my prayer is that our God will use this time and these words that I speak to help strengthen and challenge you in your faith, to draw you closer to himself, and for us all to be stirred to worship him anew. And I know that he can and will accomplish his goodwill and purpose for this time in each of our lives. If you find any measure of encouragement today, please thank him and not me. Any mistakes or omissions are all my own. Where were you? We sometimes ask that question of one another. Where were you on December 7th, 1941? Where were you on November 22nd, 1963? Where were you when Neil Armstrong took a small step and giant leap for mankind on the moon? For my generation, where were you when the space shuttle Challenger tra- tragedy occurred? Where were you when the Berlin Wall fell? Where were you on September 11, 2001? Most recently, Where were you when you learned Queen Elizabeth II had died? There are those historical moments in our lives when it seems time is divided into what came before and what follows. I imagine for those living along the Gulf Coast of Florida, many will look back in days and years to come to ask, Where were you when Hurricane Ian came ashore? We sometimes ask, where were you with the hope and the expectation of connecting over a shared experience? Or we ask with the hope of learning from those who have experienced something that we have not. Being an eyewitness to an event, historic or otherwise, well, it it often lends a certain credibility to one's recounting of events, and it illuminates details and perspectives that otherwise could be lost. There's a, there's a certain wisdom that comes from being present, an understanding that's far more difficult to grasp from a distance of space or time. And we don't solely ask that question as it relates to common cultural milestones. Sometimes we ask it much more individually about personal moments of significance in our lives. Where were you when you first walked through the door of a home you called your own? Where were you when your spouse proposed marriage? Where were you when your child took those first wobbly steps? I could go on and on. Sometimes the where is about a physical location. It's about a place. But other times we really mean to ask about one's situational context. Where were you in your life at that time? Where were your circumstances? What were they? Christian, Where were you when you first felt your need for Jesus? When you turned from your sins and placed your faith in him alone as your savior? Do you remember? Sometimes the question, where were you, comes with an implied accusation of absence. Where were you? It's a sharp rebuke. You were supposed to be there. Someone was counting on you and you missed the moment. Where were you when you were expected home from work in time for dinner, perhaps caught in D.C. traffic? And sometimes it comes with a touch of exasperation or disappointment. Where were you when I needed you? Where were you when I was at rock bottom and I desperately needed and sought a friend? It's a cry of exhaustion and pain amidst suffering. It can come from a dark place, of devastation and desolation. And some of us may have directed that anguished question toward God at one time or another. Where were you, God? In our scripture passage today, we encounter an instance in which God asked a man, where were you? And he speaks through his word today to each of us to ask us and inquire, where were you? Well, before we read from the book of Job, let's consider briefly the context in which God asks this question. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Job. In the opening verses of the book, in chapter one, we learn that Job is a man who lived in Uz, a land outside of the borders of Israel itself and commonly associated with Edom. He was a wealthy, prosperous man with many livestock, many servants, and he'd been blessed with seven sons and three daughters. And he'd been blessed and was redeemed. And he he was deemed the greatest of all the people of the East. Job is described as a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job becomes the subject of a challenge that Satan issues to God to test Job's allegiance. And God permits Satan to torment Job. He torments him through an excruciating series of events. Job loses his livestock and his servants to invading armies and fire. All ten of his children die in a building collapse caused by a great wind. And he lost all of this in the span of a single day. As if that were not enough already to crush a man, Satan then afflicts Job with painful sores all over his body. Job's wife invites Job to, quote, curse God and die, chapter 2, verse 9. Yet in all these unfathomable heartaches and hardships, we are told that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job has three friends who come to offer him words of advice, and yet they fail in their attempts at helping Job make sense of his predicament. They mistakenly assume that Job's Sufferings must be the resulting judgment of some personal sin that Job has committed against God that he must identify and repent of. They assume that Job's suffering is his own fault. Well, Job understandably laments his extreme suffering, he curses the day he was born. He asks many why questions of God in chapter 3. He expresses a wish that God would end his life in chapter 6. He pours out his honest emotions to God in chapter 7. Job at times both acknowledges God's presence and awareness of his suffering while also asking if God really sees him. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment, How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Chapter 7. Behold, he, God, passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. That's chapter 9, verse 11. Have you, God, eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? In chapter 13, Job pleads with God to call him in order that he might answer. He seeks an opportunity to speak before God and invites God's reply. In chapter 19, 7, Job accuses God of being absent, of not heeding his plea for justice. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. In chapter 23, Job essentially asks, Where is God? Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. This was the context in which God spoke to Job from a whirlwind. This was the reality that preceded God's question to Job, where were you? Friends, what's your own personal context today? What suffering are you experiencing in your own life? What hardship and heartache and anguish did you bring with you when you walked through that door this morning? Perhaps you've been asking some of the same questions that Job did. I certainly don't know all the details, but God does. And God's ancient words to Job that we're about to read are his words to you too today. They're beautiful breathtaking words they're words that humble us and challenge us and should even encourage us and yes it's a bit of a long passage but I think it's important to hear all of God's words and so I'll take a few minutes now to read them to you starting at chapter 38 verse 1 that can be found on page 443 of the pew bible and we'll read through chapter 42 verse 6 it may help you to turn there and follow along as you're turning there, kids, I want to speak especially to you for a minute. I know it can be hard to sit and listen to a sermon and to stay focused through reading a really long set of Bible verses. It's hard for us adults too sometimes. This part of the Bible we're about to read is full of words that show us how great and awesome God is. He is so powerful and he made everything and everyone and you're going to hear about how he controls the light and the darkness all the stars in the universe, how he rules the water and the weather and cares for the many animals that he has made to roam the earth. It says, who knows this and who knows that and who can do this and who can do that? And the answer is always God and not the man Job. So maybe as I read, it would be helpful for you to count or make a list of all the things you hear, that tell us how amazing God is. So now let's read and hear God's word together, starting in Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you. And you make it known to me where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements surely you know or who stretched the line upon it on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they... Crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open, They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold? From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? and Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs, like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth? is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they're beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Today we'll consider two truths about God that he speaks to Job. And then we'll briefly consider Job's response and ours. And finally, I'll conclude with a few questions for us. The first truth is this. God is the all-wise creator who knows far more than Job could ever fully understand. God is the all-wise creator who knows far more than Job could ever fully understand. God starts off speaking to Job in chapter 38 verses 2 to 3. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God is essentially saying, so you think you're smart? You think you know everything? You think you can figure it all out on your own? Well, get ready. Embrace yourself. Let me ask you some questions and let's see if you know the answers. You see, Job had been trying to make sense of his suffering, and he'd drawn some conclusions or assumptions about who God is and where he was without really having the full picture. There were things about Job's life and circumstances and about God that simply were hidden from Job's view and understanding, things that were and are fully known to God. And so God asked Job, in chapter 38, in verse 4, Where were you? Where were you when I, the Lord Almighty, laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You sense a, a touch of rebuke, perhaps. Sarcasm from God. Or Perhaps these words were also mixed with a touch of bittersweet compassion from God. You see, God knew of Job's faith. In chapter 1, verse 8, God had called Job his servant, one who was unmatched among his people at the time, who walked uprightly, who turned from evil and feared God. God knew that these words would be stinging reminders to Job, that they would demolish any shred of arrogance and I know better that Job brought with him that day. It's both a, who do you think you are, and a, who do you know I am, moment. Where was Job at the time of the earth's creation? Where was God? We continue reading in verse 5. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? On? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. We read in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Let's jump down to chapter 38, verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its house? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Again, a touch of sarcasm from God. God is contrasting his infinite existence through all time with the great number of days Job has been alive. Job's life in the span of eternity is short, and not so many days. We're told throughout Scripture, like Job, the days of our lives are numbered. And they are like a brief mist, a vapor that appears and disappears. Again from Genesis 1, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Job wasn't around then, but God certainly was. Another question in verse 24. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? This one especially cuts to the heart of Job. We read in chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, the account of one of Job's servants. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. All ten of Job's children perished in an instant. And it was from a sirocco, a wind from the east where is the east wind scattered upon the earth another question beginning in chapter 38:25 who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass god said let the earth sprout vegetation genesis 1 plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let, there, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. In chapter 38 verses 31 through 33, we see references to God's command of the stars that he has made, the constellations, the Pleiades, kids that's a group of seven stars, they're also known as the seven sisters, you may have seen them in the night sky or on the badge of Subaru cars. Orion, that one's easiest to find by the three bright stars in a row that form the hunter's belt. The Maseroth is one that we don't know what that means today, Um, but the bear and its children are also known as Ursa Major, the big bear, the big dipper, Uh, and then Ursa Minor, the little bear with the little dipper. These are the constellations that God is talking about here, and God asks Job, can you lead them? Can you guide them? Are you able to set the courses of the stars? Job couldn't, but God does. I want to highlight again here these questions were not perplexing to Job. He had contemplated them before. Job had proclaimed in response to one of his friends back in chapter 9, if one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Those are the words of Job. Job knew he didn't understand the reasons for his suffering. But he did know who he believed God to be. Beginning in chapter 38, 39, through the end of chapter 39, God recounts to Job examples of his mastery and care over the creatures that he has made. He ensures the lions are well fed and the ravens too. He watches over the mountain goats as they give birth to their young calves and the wild donkey roaming free in barren lands. He plies the demeanor of the wild ox that resists serving man. And God even decided the ostrich would be a swift but not particularly intelligent flightless bird. He's created one of my favorite creatures, the horse, to be ready for battle. And he gave the hawk and eagle their wings to soar and establish their nests in the rocky heights. In each of these, we see God's wisdom as creator in the way in which he conceived of and made each animal and in the ways in which he equipped them with unique attributes. We see his diligent, attentive love in the ways in which he cares for and looks after each one according to its need. Anyone who has ever cared for a domesticated pet knows something of the challenges and labors of love that that entails. Or if you've been to a zoo or you've watched maybe a nature documentary, you may feel you have some sense of the needs and the cares of wild animals of all kinds. It's a daunting task. And yet here we get a small glimpse of God's attentiveness and his wisdom, that he may provide care in so many specialized ways to the nearly unfathomable number of creatures he's made to inhabit the earth along with us. We read in Genesis 1 again, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm and according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. By some estimates, as of last year, humankind has cataloged more than 1.7 million different animal species. Most of those are insects. Birds account for about 11,162, and mammals only 6,578 species. But let's pause just for a moment to think not just about how many species and, and the variety and diversity of animals there are, But how many of each one there are as well? And God cares for them all. Just last month, a study was released by researchers from the National Academy of Sciences, and they estimated that there are approximately 20 quadrillion ants alone on the planet at this time. That's 20,000 million million. That's 20 with 15 zeros behind it. Our God knows the exact count in any given moment, and he rules them all. My the Christian brothers and sisters, is the God you know that big, that amazing, that awe inspiring, that wise? Or have you conceived of him in a more limited way and thought of him smaller than he is? Is your God too small? Of course, this text from the book of Job and Genesis chapter 1, they're not the only places in the Bible in which we see God's mastery over his creation. From the great flood of Noah's day to the, the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea during the time of the Exodus, from sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice altar and stones on Mount Carmel with Elijah, to protecting Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from perishing within the fiery furnace and shutting the mouths of hungry lions, we read about in Daniel. From appointing a whale to swallow Jonah, to the shady vine that grew and then withered on a hot, sunny day. We could go on and on. God is active and wise in using his creation to accomplish his perfectly good will, even when it may seem inscrutable in the moment to us mere humans. God leads us along. We who are his creation And he leads us through his creation. Some through the waters. Some through the flood. Some through the fire. Some through great sorrow. Where was God? He was there. God was and is the eyewitness to his acts of creation from the beginning of time. He not only was there at the foundation of the earth, but he knows all the layers. He knows the incredible complexity and myriad detail and how to that we humans can only begin to partially comprehend. He has wisdom beyond measure. And he was with Job every day of Job's life, every new dawn. We read in chapter 38, starting in verse 12, "'Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it?' God remained present, in that time of extreme suffering in Job's life. He knew all that was going on, both that which Job knew and that which Job did not. He made us, and he knows our deepest thoughts and our doubts and our questions. He knows the searing cries of our souls, and he knows the moans and groans of our spirits that we can scarcely pull together to articulate in words. Did you notice that God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind? In chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6, God was not absent. He was not ambivalent. He was not apathetic or complacent. Job might have anticipated God would not answer his pleas. His friends certainly didn't expect God to speak to Job. Chapter 35, one of his friends had some thoughts about the likelihood of Job hearing from God. This is what he said. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you, Job, say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. In Psalm 8, the psalmist muses, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet God answered Job. In this instance, through the physical presence of a whirlwind. Do you see glimpses of God's compassionate love and care for Job in his presence? In the fact that he answered Job at all in the midst of Job's suffering and questioning and heartache. Friend, in God answering Job, do you see something of his love and compassion for you here today? That he spoke these words for us, that he preserved them for us and gave them to us in a language that we can understand, and that he gave us ears to hear and eyes that we might read, and minds that we might comprehend, and hearts that we might believe. In whatever trial or suffering you may be experiencing, in whatever life context you brought with you to church today, in whatever ways you've come to the limits of your own understanding, in all the unanswered questions, and in all the waiting for things to get better, hear these words of God in his love and compassion toward you. And so now we, like Job, have been reminded anew. God is the all wise creator who knows far more than Job and we could ever fully understand. The second truth, more briefly, God speaks to Job in this God is the all powerful ruler who accomplishes his just purposes in ways that Job cannot match. God is the all powerful ruler who accomplishes his just purposes in ways that Job cannot match. If we might summarize chapters 38 and 39 as revealing what Job cannot know and what God does know, then these next chapters, chapters 40 and 41, address the questions about what Job cannot do and what God can do. So in chapter 40, verses 7 through 9, God again begins speaking to Job from the whirlwind, and he says, "'Dress for action like a man. I will question you.'" And you make it known to me, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? In other words, get ready, brace yourself, I have some more questions for you. And God starts by addressing Job's concepts of justice and power. Of course Job had a physical arm, yet it could not compare to the infinite power found in the arm of God. Of course Job had a voice, a voice that we might even say metaphorically could be raised in a thunder to cry out for justice, and yet that voice was hardly a feeble whisper when compared to the authoritative, booming voice of God in proclaiming his judgments. Job could not comprehend the fullness of the justice of God. He didn't know all that was going on in the celestial background. He couldn't know God's plans or timing to make things right and vindicate the good. Job might look around and see no temporal consequences for those marauders who stole or killed his livestock and murdered his servants. Job could not accomplish in his own power something that would require the awesome power of God himself. He might desire retribution or accountability and yet find his own powerlessness and futility in any attempt to carry it out. God challenges Job in chapter 40, verses 10 through 14, to achieve that which would be impossible for a mere mortal man. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. That is to say, essentially, Bury their faces in the ground in death. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Job could not do this. He had inadequate power to mete out justice and overcome those who had wronged him. He had insufficient power to accomplish his own will and purpose, and Job could not save himself. Friend, are you any different? In the verses that follow through the remainder of chapters 40 and 41, God reflects on two powerful creatures, behemoth and leviathan. We don't know exactly what kind of animals these were. Behemoth is a large creature of the land. It's most commonly believed to be the huge hippopotamus. This makes sense given the description of the habitat under the lotus plants and the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, through Jordan, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Leviathan is a fierce creature of the water, and that's most commonly believed to be the crocodile. The description of Leviathan uses the weapons of fishery, a fishhook, a hook, a harpoon, fishing spears, in futile attempts to subdue him. And the description of his scaly back made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal seem to align with the large amphibious reptile. When Leviathan lays in the mud like a threshing sledge on the mire, nothing penetrates his underbelly. When he thrashes in the water, it foams with violent turbulence, and he leaves a shining wake. Whether a hippo and crocodile or some other creatures that are unknown to us today, God's emphasis in describing behemoth and Leviathan is to demonstrate their strength to demonstrate the limits of Job's capability to overpower them, and, of course, God's certain ability to do just that. God declares in chapter 40, verse 15, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. Who can tame this formidable beast with powerful muscles, strong bones, legs like bars of iron? In verse 24, God asks, Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The clear implication of these verses is that only the creator of behemoth is powerful enough to tame him. Of Leviathan, God asked Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Beware. Beware. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. Verse 22, we read that terror dances before Leviathan. And in verse 25, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they're beside themselves. The weapons of man, iron, bronze, stones... Clubs, javelins, they're nothing to match Leviathan's strength. They're as weak as straw or rotten wood, reduced to stubble. And Leviathan laughs at those who would threaten him. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. We read in verse 33, chapter 41. As with behemoth, so with the ferocious Leviathan. Mankind is outmatched and lacks power to subdue him. God calls out the utter futility of the man who relies on his own strength in this battle. Read chapter 41, verse 9. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. Only the creator of Leviathan is strong enough to overcome Leviathan. And then God states something remarkable. We read in verses 10 and 11, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir Leviathan up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God essentially says, so, you thought behemoth and Leviathan were scary? You thought you had the power to fight and beat them? Well, that's nothing compared to me and my power. I rule over all my creation. God has the power, not Job, and not us. We heard earlier in Pastor David's prayer of praise some words from the book of Isaiah chapter 40. I want to read some of them to you again because I think they're encouraging for us to hear. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers." who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friends, have you contemplated the significance that God is omnipotent? That he has all power to conquer every foe? Do you harbor any arrogance thinking you can contend with the Almighty God? Have you thought about how God has strength when and where you do not, and immeasurably more? Is there anything you think God cannot do in order to accomplish his will? Is the God you conceive in your mind impotent in some way? Do you think he somehow cannot or will not execute his justice? Do you think he somehow is not powerful enough to vanquish and forgive your sin? Do you think he somehow is not able to overcome death itself? We read in chapter 38, verses 16 through 18, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Friends, you and I, along with Job, have not done these things but our God has. So we, like Job, have now been reminded God is the all-powerful ruler who accomplishes his just purposes in ways that Job and we cannot match. Now we'll briefly take note of Job's response to these words from God and how we too might respond to the truths that we've heard. Number one, silence. In chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, we learn that Job's initial response to the questions God asked him was to listen quietly. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In our hurried age, full of distractions and ever-shortening attention spans, Surrounded by a cacophony of sound and messages from all kinds of sources, it can be challenging to find a quiet space to listen to God speak to us. But even more than our physical surroundings, in the fallen state of our minds and hearts, we're all too often quick to speak. We get defensive when we're confronted by God's piercing words I get it, but but God, what about? We can fill in those blanks all too easily we would do well many times to silence ourselves and just listen to the word of the Lord. Number two, confident trust and hope. In chapter 42 too, Job answers God again and confesses, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's a simple statement. It reveals Job's confidence in who God is and in what he can do. What about you? Do you know that God can do all things? Do you believe his purposes cannot be stopped? Are you confident in that? Do you hope in that, knowing the limitations of your own ability to accomplish on your own? When you see the end of your own strength and ability, when you reach that limit of your endurance, of your patience, of your will to carry on living in the midst of a painful trial that cries out for justice, do you confidently place your hope in God? Do you trust him with your life and with your deepest heartaches? Number three, humility and repentance. In chapter 42, verses 3 through 6, Job further meditates on what God has spoken to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job came to recognize the folly of leaning on his own understanding in the midst of his suffering. He realizes he was too quick to speak about things for which which he lacked complete understanding. Job basically says, Who was I to question God? Who was I to demand that God speak and answer me? When Job says he despises himself, he is expressing disgust at his own ignorance. He comes before the Lord now with humility and he repents of his careless words. What about you and me? Have these questions from God convicted us of our own pride of comprehension? Have we too, out loud or within, assumed that God owes us an explanation? Have we questioned his wisdom and his care, his power and his justice in the midst of our own suffering as we experience trials in our own lives? Turn to the Lord in humble repentance and receive anew his tender, compassionate mercy. The word translated as repent in verse 6, it originates from the same Hebrew root word for comfort seen earlier in the book. This verse could be read as, therefore I despise myself and am comforted in dust and ashes. Job ends this dialogue with God in a position of restored relation and peace. And so too may we know God's comfort when we go to him to repent of our sins. He is a loving father, a God who eagerly longs to show us his love and embrace us with his forgiveness. As we're about to conclude, you might be thinking, this all sounds great, but what about Jesus? Where's Jesus in this sermon? (laughs) Where was Jesus in the midst of Job's suffering? Oh, friends, he's been there all along. Speaking of Jesus, John writes at the outset of the gospel that he recorded, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We cannot speak of the all-wise creator Without acknowledging the eternal presence of Jesus, God's Son, through whom all things were made. In Genesis 1:26, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Who was the us? Let us make man in our image. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All eternal and all present at creation. Where was Jesus? He was there. And when Jesus walked here on the earth some 2,000 years ago, he demonstrated a mastery over creation that no mere man possibly could. We read in Luke 8, starting in verse 22, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. And we know Jesus healed people of their diseases. He commanded demons to come out of a man that they were tormenting. He even revived dead people such as Lazarus and the young daughter of Jairus. Jesus spoke during his time on earth of his father's attentive care for his creation. We read in Matthew 10, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven." Jesus told Philip, we read in John 14, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." We cannot speak of the all-powerful ruler without recognizing the one who sits at his right hand even now, who has conquered sin and death and who intercedes for his people. Friends, so much more than the power to subdue a mighty behemoth or Leviathan, what greater power could God reveal himself to possess? than the power to satisfy his judgment against the sins of the world, to once and for all defeat the evil Satan who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and who tempted Job through extreme suffering and affliction and who ensnares every human being created in the image of God. What greater power could God demonstrate than to conquer death itself? What greater wisdom that surpasses our wildest deserving and understanding could God reveal than to plan and choose to sacrifice his very self, his son Jesus, in our place, that he, the only innocent one, would die on a brutal cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and be restored to his loving embrace and enjoy life with him forever. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, "'Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom "'and knowledge of God! "'How unsearchable are his judgments "'and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friend, where were you? Where were you on the night Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and handed over to be condemned? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, you were in Jesus's Listen to these words of Jesus recorded in John chapter 17. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jumping into verse 20, I do not ask for these, the disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Before the foundation of the world, where were you when they pierced his hands and feet and nailed him to a cross of wood? Where were you when they cursed and mocked him and placed a crown of sharp thorns upon his head? Where were you when they pierced his side and his blood flowed down? Where were you when he gave a loud cry and breathed his last? Where were you? God leads us along, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, some through great sorrow, but all through the blood of Jesus, slain for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus died, but let us never forget he also rose from the dead. He rose and he rules, and we are to fear no evil. And we are to patiently endure as we await his return. We need not have all the answers today. Just as Job had to wait for many of his answers from God. We learn at the end of Job chapter 42 verse 10 and following that God restored Job's fortunes twice as much as he had before. He received words of comfort from his brothers and sisters. He was blessed with many livestock, thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys. And he had 10 more kids, seven sons and three daughters, just as before. But worldly property and blessing is never guaranteed to us. Much of life is spent waiting. It's spent waiting for all to finally be made right. Anyone who has ever lost a loved one can tell you that one unique person could never replace another uniquely loved family member who was gone. Job's 10 new kids weren't replacements for his 10 prior kids who died. Job had to live with his heartache another long while, with only partial answers, and a trust and hope in God's wise rule over his life. He lived another 140 years, and we read in chapter 42, verse 17, Job died, an old man and full of days. I asked a long while back toward the beginning of this sermon, Christian, where were you when you first felt your need for Jesus, turn from your sins, and place your faith in him alone as your Savior? Do you remember? Some of us can recall a specific time and place when our lives began anew, when we were reborn and cast off the old self to start walking in our new faith in Jesus. For others of us who believe, though, we don't recall that precise moment of decision. We simply recognize the reality of our hope, that somewhere along the way, our knowledge of God, of Jesus, and of his death transformed into repentance and faith in our Savior, So while we may not all remember a physical time and place when we were saved, we all know exactly where we were relationally with respect to God. Prior to that moment, each one of us was lost. That's where we were. We were dead in our sins and without any reliable hope for this life or what lies beyond. We were enemies of God who had rebelled against his good authority as our all-wise creator. We were smug We were arrogant in our perception of our own strength and power, and in our comprehension and knowledge of what was best for us, and good for ourselves and others. We declined to submit to God as our all-powerful ruler. And then, in that moment, when we first believed, life changed. All that had come before was past, and nothing still to come would ever be the same. We were in that pivotal instant of our life, now found. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. We read in Jeremiah. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're within the sound of my voice, I say to you, welcome. Thank you for spending this long while with us. There's no place we would rather you be. And in our love for you, we would love to tell you more about Jesus, that you too might come to experience the hope we have in Christ. And perhaps the most pressing, most urgent question that I have for you today is not where were you, But rather, where are you? Are you lost? Separated from God by your sin, you are in an eternally deadly quagmire of your own doing. You are waiting in line for God's judgment and perhaps foolishly thinking you're good enough or powerful enough to escape it. Are you suffering and looking for wisdom? Have you reached the end of yourself and felt your lack? Have you realized your insufficiency? Are you in a place spiritually where you feel your need for a savior? Where are you today? Finally, let's ponder one more question together. Where will you be? This life and this world we see and experience today are not all there is. For each of us, there will come a time when we no longer inhabit these frail and failing bodies. There will come a day when the justice that we long for amidst our trials and suffering is finally revealed in its totality. No one knows the hour. It could be soon. It could be many ages from now. One song I like puts it this way. So much pain and no good reason why. You've cried until the tears run dry. And nothing here can make you understand. The one thing that you held so dear is slipping from your hand. And you say, why? Why? Why does it go this way? And all I can say is, somewhere down the road, there'll be answers to the questions. Somewhere down the road, though we cannot see it now, somewhere down the road, there will be mighty arms reaching for you. And they will hold the answers at the end of the road. Friends, when that day finally comes, where will you be? Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, our God, Your ways are not our ways. Your perfect wisdom exceeds our ability to comprehend it. Your power is mighty, stronger than any adversary. You care for and rule over your creation. Thank you. Thank you for making each of us in your image and for sustaining our lives. We praise you for your merciful kindness in relating to us, in knowing and loving us individually. You sacrificed your very self that we might be reconciled to you and rejoice in your forgiveness. You are present in the midst of our sufferings. And when we lack understanding, we can trust and rely in your resolve and promise to accomplish your good and perfect will, to carry out your purposes, your ability to administer your justice. Protect us from despair and fix our eyes on the one who endured the utmost suffering that we might live with you for all eternity. Stir us to hope in you alone. Do this for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.